appreciate about the Dallas Willard is how all his references are so 80s. Does anybody here know who Dear Abby was? We talked about this. Okay. <laughs> um, I love that about him. Can we move your iPad? Oh, yeah. Um, well, my task this morning is to talk about um, the call to be a disciple, which isn't a lot different from... We're going to talk about discipleship all week long, and you get four different people. So look at it that way. It's like the Gospels. There's four different views on Jesus. We're going to give you four different angles on discipleship. And I actually want to start just riffing a little bit on what Ben riffed on last night. He sent me his notes, and just hearing that quote um, is great. But I want to just riff on it a little bit more to, to underline what Ben shared last night um, and the importance of what Ben, ben shared last night. Um, Anytime you can take an over-familiar word and, and give it a new translation for yourself, it's helpful. Um, because maybe it helps you get a different angle on an over-familiar word. I like a learner, right? Learner, student, those are two of my favorite translations for what a disciple is, a learner. And thinking of a learner as somebody who is learning for their whole life, right? It's not, we, you know... A lot of our context of learning are you learn one thing, you're done with the class, and you move on. But a disciple of Jesus is someone who is going to learn from him all their life, constantly, from now until however old they get. Um, and actually, I think a good way to, to get at what a learner is is actually to talk about philosophers. And I don't mean modern philosophers who have, you know, their chairs of departments at universities and you go to class and that's it. I mean ancient philosophers. If you go to look at some of the earliest Christian art in about 200 years after Jesus rose from the dead, when you see Jesus depicted, he's depicted in the costume of a philosopher. When I say costume, he was depicted in the uniform, what philosophers wore. Why is that? Why were Christians doing that? Well, it's because ancient philosophers presented an entire way of life. When you became a student of a philosopher like Plato, you were kind of immersed in a whole way of life. You lived together, you learned together, and as Ben shared, it influenced and shaped everything you did. And what those guys proposed, or what they claimed to present, was how to live well, period. Right? To live well in every sense of that word. What is the good life? Who is a good person? And how do you become a good person? Those philosophers presented that. And so Christians, familiar with that idea, familiar with philosophers, were happy to depict Jesus that way because he presents the same kind of thing. Right? He presents the same kind of thing as they did. And just to give a little comparison, um, I think of somebody who in the modern world is a kind of a philosopher in that sense, it would be Jordan Peterson. All right? Jordan Peterson is incredibly influential, very interesting, and I'm not riffing or negative on him in any way. I don't agree with him in every way, but what he presents is a whole way to live, right? His book is called 12 Rules of Life, and if you pay attention to it, it covers everything. It covers your body. It covers your mind. It covers your relationships, right? He has things to say about a whole way of life, and one of the reasons I think Jordan Peterson is so influential is because the church doesn't often present that whole way of life, right? It doesn't present Jesus 
as master of everything that you could run into as a human being, right? He's a master of all those things. I don't know how many of you get my Instagram algorithm sends me tons of masterclass commercials. <laughs> you all get those? <laughs> Super interesting. I've never, has anybody ever done one? Anybody ever done it? Which one did you do? Um, it was on uh, negotiation strategy. Okay. Yeah, so they have negotiation, they have uh, chefs, uh, Ron Howard, Opie, they've got movie directors. Super interesting. Like, the best of the best in their field, and they get, you get them as your teacher, you get access to them as your teacher. That's really compelling and interesting. But I would suggest the master class, right? Jesus, we have the opportunity to have Jesus as our teacher in all of that. I mean, there's things we can learn from everybody, but we have the invitation to have the master class with the master on the subject of life. And there's nothing that that doesn't touch. There's nothing that Jesus is not the master par excellence at. And when Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that works in you, both the will and the do of his good pleasure, he's saying, you've got a master class with Jesus, and you don't even have it on your phone, you've got it in here. And you can take it into anything you do. All right? And that's why you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because if I have Ron Howard as my mentor in making movies, I'm going to show up every time. Right? I mean, am I going to miss an appointment? Because I, I, I just want to sleep in today. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avail myself of that opportunity and respond to it. So again, I think uh, we just need to see that life is really hard. Right? And there's tons that will destroy you and wound you and tear you apart and people don't know how to live. And what we have been given is the master of life as our teacher. And we are invited to invite him into everything. And so I'm talking about the call to be a disciple. And I want to stress that we will be learning, again, I want to underline this, we will be learning for the rest of our days. Right? Hopefully I'm 70 and I'm still learning from Jesus. How to be a husband, a father, a pastor, a friend, a neighbor. Hopefully I'm learning that all my days. Gerard Manley Hopkins has a poem called, wait, what is it? Uh, As King Fisher, Fishers Catch Fire. Right? There's a line at the end of this poem where he says, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Right? And the idea there is it's not just 10,000, but he plays, he wants to play in every human life. Or, or we can put it this way. The Father wants Jesus refracted through every possible variation of human life. He wants him in every conceivable station, position, um, context in the world. Um, and here's a thought experiment you can do to figure out if you're deficient in your understanding of Jesus as a teacher. Right? Is there a station or a profession you can't imagine Jesus in? Can you imagine him as a neuroscientist? Or as a plumber? Or as a brother? Or as a carpenter? Or a movie producer? Right? Run through any sort of context. And if you can't picture Jesus as excellent and the best in that, in a way that would glorify God, Maybe your grasp of him as a teacher is deficient, right? Um, but we simply want to have deeply convinced ourselves that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. 
that there is nothing that we are given to in life that is worth giving ourselves to that he does not have great wisdom and insight to teach us about that thing. And it's some of the, uh, it's some of the most excellent in their fields in the history of the world who were Christians and found Jesus as their teacher in genetics or um, reading and literacy, right? In every kind of field. So this is the ultimate question, and I would suggest that Jesus' whole ministry was about the ultimate question of, will you be my disciple? All right? Will you be my disciple? Um, I would say in my own life, the significant turning point in my religious life was going from realizing I was kind of in Jesus' club to realizing he was my master and my teacher and willingly giving myself to that. That was a, a significant turning point. Remember, uh, Jesus says there's going to be many who they knock on the door in the last day and they say, hey, Jesus, you, were, uh, you came and you taught in our streets. Right? That's their closest association they can give, right? I remember when you came to Capernaum and you were in town, and he says, I don't know where you come from, right? Because there was no association of student to teacher. They did not come to him and say, you clearly know what's going on, teach me. You clearly know what's going on, I want to follow you. And so Jesus is very serious about getting people to think about the question, am I really a disciple? Do I really want to be a disciple of Jesus? And I would suggest, in my limited experience being a pastor, most people break down, most people have problems because they haven't fundamentally answered that question. I mean, you think about it. Jesus' ministry was super compelling, and there were lots of reasons to come around Jesus' ministry that didn't necessarily result in you saying, be my master and my teacher. Does that make sense? People got healed. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But that didn't always translate into be my master, be my teacher. Or it didn't even always translate into gratitude. Right? Many people come around church for all kinds of reasons. Theoretically, people are loving. And in a lot of other contexts, people aren't loving. But if you're coming for those reasons and you haven't really resolved the question, I want Jesus to be my master, I want to be his student, then it will break down. It will come to a crisis. Somebody won't love you like you think they are. Uh, it will, you'll get bored with people. Uh, there will be all kinds of reasons why it will come to the end. And if you look at Jesus' ministry as who is really a disciple, I would suggest his ministry was a thinning out ministry. Okay? I begin to notice, or I've noticed more and more, if you really pay attention, just read through the gospel, one gospel in one setting, and notice how much Jesus <coughs> puts fires out. Notice how much he avoids building his numbers, right? Notice how much he is constantly avoiding crowds, constantly saying things that will offend people, not because he likes offense, but because he was constantly on the lookout for who really wants to learn from me. I remember in the Gospel of John when he says, well, sorry guys, you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a bunch of people are like, this is too weird, we're gone. And he looks to the disciples and says, what about you guys? You want to leave too? And Peter says, only you have the words of life. Right? And that's the settled conviction that we're called to come to. So Jesus is constantly thinning out the crowds and constantly evaluating the question, who is a disciple? And I'll just say, I don't want, I don't want everybody to, the point is not for everybody to go around and go, oh, they're not a disciple. The point is to say, are you a disciple? 
You're not a disciple merely by association with disciples. Does that make sense? You're not, a, you're not a disciple merely by being in a crowd of disciples. All right? Um, the question constantly should come back to yourself. Is my fundamental desire in life to learn to live my life as Jesus would live it if he were I? Is that what I'm all about? And if that's what you're all about, there's great joy in that. But I don't think we'll ever be done with that thinning out process. Everybody remember the parable of the tares and the wheat? Everybody remember this parable? Jesus tells a story about a guy who, he's a, he's a landowner and he plants his field with wheat. And an enemy comes and plants weeds in the midst of the wheat. And his servants come and say, Hey, did you, you know, this is bad seed. What's going on? He said, an enemy did this. And his, his servant said, should we tear it all out? And he says, no, let's wait until the end and then we'll separate it at the end. I think Jesus is telling us there will always be the condition in the church that there are people there that are disciples and people there that aren't. And so it's the job of the church to constantly be presenting that call and that invitation. All right, we finally are not going to be able to have nothing but disciples, right, until the end. But we are constantly called to invite people to that and to, uh, and to not deliberately drive people away. But, you know, I have this conversation all the time. And I'll, I'll just use an example that's not relevant to many of you. It's in marriage counseling. Very often in, when couples are having trouble in their marriage, it really just comes down to what they want is certain things from their spouse. And their primary motivation isn't, I just want to be Jesus to my spouse. And I finally have to say, well, you know, I, I understand that these are some important things, but I have this question. Is your fundamental drive to learn what Jesus wants you to do and be as a husband or as a wife? And very often they realize they don't. So again, there's lots of benefits from Christian counseling. But the fundamental question always gets back to, and this is what the church is always called to help people with. We're called to help people be disciples. We're not called to help people be happy on certain terms or have happy Christian marriages on certain terms. We're called to help people be disciples. Does that make sense? So it's a, it's a task that we've constantly got to bring ourselves back to. So let me read a couple of scriptures here. Um, and the first is Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, 24. Of course, this is... This is that moment when uh, Jesus has asked his disciples who people say he is, and then he looks at them and says, but who do you say I am? And, of course, Peter has his major foot-in-mouth moment. Um, let me just read this in 1621. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, even at this moment, Peter was a disciple, but Jesus was calling him to discipleship. Does that make sense? Or maybe we can say he was calling him to the next lesson. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. I want to talk about the cross for a few minutes. Remember the context. We read this, and we know about Jesus 
death on the cross. But remember, this is before the death on the cross. So for the disciples, what's called to mind? The most gruesome punishment that you could have for a non-Roman citizen. All right? Roman citizens didn't get, they got the privilege of being beheaded. All right? You didn't have to go through the torture and humiliation of crucifixion. But if you weren't a citizen, you got crucifixion. So it's execution. And I think it's helpful to think of all kinds of different kinds of execution. Um, but I think sometimes we read this call to take up the cross, and we read it as Jesus is hardcore, and he just really likes hard stuff. Right? And I don't believe that's the central heart behind it. Right? Jesus is not somebody that just is like, yeah, man, we just got to live hard. Right? That's not the point of taking up the cross. Uh, the point of taking up the cross, and to me, this is the best explanation of the cross I can think of, of your cross. And Jesus doesn't say take up my cross. He says take up your cross. Here's the cross. Not getting your way, is, or getting your way is no longer important to you. That's the cross. Getting your way Having to have things go your way is no longer important to you. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, what you're going to have to give up is having to get your way. Now, I grant that literal dying on a physical cross is the ultimate in not getting your way. But I would also say, just in your day-to-day -day life, a small thing that happens that doesn't go your way, it's not a big deal. Or if you've decided to be Jesus' student, you've given up getting your way being a major deal for how your days go and how your life goes. Right? That's the cross. That makes sense? I think that simplifies things. Okay? Tomorrow, there's going to be things that happen in your life that are not what you would wish or prefer. And as a disciple of Jesus, you can go, Jesus, I thank you that you walked this road before. And I'm, I mean, I had my preference, but I didn't get it. I'm all right with that because I want to follow you. And I believe that you have something better for me and through me than me just getting my way. So this is what's behind all of Paul's language about death. Again, Paul is not heavy metal, you know, death metal, life is life's things. Paul says things like Colossians, we are dead, and our life is hid with Christ and God. He says, we've given up having to have our way. And we found out that in doing so, we have something much better than being our way, right? He says in Philippians 2, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Right? He's saying the same thing. I've learned the joy of the cross. I've learned the supreme freedom of not having to get my way. And what I get in place of that is Christ. And I would rather have that than getting my way now. Because I've tasted and seen how good he is. Galatians 2, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Right? Try that on. And think about in your day-to-day -day life. It's a great thing to, first of all, have memorized. And then bring it out when something happens. Your car breaks down. You were going to the store to get that drink you like and the wrap. I mean, seriously, that, that, is that a cross? Well, it's a moment where you can... Live by, I like to get things my way, or you didn't get things your way. And it's okay. And you embrace it. And say, Lord, hey, I'm grateful for that. So, 
It's the misery of living to have to get your way. And by the way, think about miserable people you know. They're miserable, I would suggest, fundamentally because they go through life trying to make sure they get what they want. And if you know anything about life, you know how hard that is. And then, you know, it works all kinds of ways. You don't get what you want, so you're angry and you're bitter and you're, you know, you're miserable. Or you get what you want, but it's not what you thought it was. Right? It, it works all kinds of ways. But the cross is the invitation to the great, joyous freedom of not having to have your way. Of not having to be respected. Of not having people, you know, not... You, your life is not, your day is not ruined if people don't appreciate how smart you are. Or how funny you are. Or how much you serve them. Does that make sense? I believe Jesus was one of the most joyous humans that ever lived. Because he knew the freedom of not having to live life to get his way. Uh, and that is very simply what the cross is. Um, and so a good test of whether you embrace the cross daily is... What happens to you emotionally and psychologically when things don't go your way? Right? When something breaks down. When somebody is ugly to you. Uh, when somebody is mean to you. What happens to you internally? Have you gotten comfortable with, man, I'm so accepted by God. And he's given me so much that this is not a big deal. Right? I think one of the things the cross does for us is help us not take ourselves so seriously. When you take yourself too seriously, you are setting yourself up for misery. So this brings us to the idea that what Jesus is offering, and, and we have to remember this, what Jesus is offering is a tremendous bargain. Right? And I, I don't... I don't think until recently I really got my mind around some of the parables with regard to this idea. So let me, let me read Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now Jesus is talking about the kingdom here, but I would suggest that discipleship is learning to be a student of the kingdom. Right? It's, it's more or less the same thing. Right? And if I'm learning from Jesus how to live in cooperation with what God is doing. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, people who really find the kingdom, they find the secret of giving up having to give their way, and just finding out what God is doing and joining them in doing that are like this pearl merchant. Now, every time I've read these, I've read them the wrong way entirely. I've read them as, yeah, to follow Jesus, you've got to give everything up. Okay, that's true, but the whole point is that pearl merchant who knows pearls and saw the pearls, saw the greatest pearl he'd ever seen in his life, laughed on the way to the bank as he sold everything to buy the pearl. Does that make sense? There was absolutely no regret on his part. Right? That's the point of the parable. He's not going, oh, I got to sell all these pearls to get this really awesome pearl. He's going, I can't believe I have found the absolute best deal ever. Anybody who's a, a collector and who knows, you know, that creme de la creme, that, that, that thing that everybody wants to get, finds it. Or, you know, you always see, I love these, when people find old sports cars, antique sports cars in barns that have been sitting there for years and whatever. Nobody that finds something like that is sad. They're thrilled 
to pay whatever price they need to pay to get it because they know it's worth it. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this. You're getting the best deal of the life. Of the life. Right? Think about all the scriptures that I don't think we take seriously enough. Jesus says, I came that you might have joy. And that your joy might abound. Right? Uh, I want you to thrive. Jesus Christ, God the Father, they want us to be joyful, thriving people. Not in heaven one day. Now. Tomorrow. That's what they want. And they know, and here's the kicker. They know that when we are fixated on getting what we want, we are fixated on a very shallow, cheap, chintzy, counterfeit, the real thing. Right? They know that the problem with the human race is we have bought counterfeits. We've bought into all of the bad advertising that sells us crap that won't do anything for us. God wants us to have the real McCoy. Right, and this is why I love C.S. Lewis's quote. He says, we're like children in a slum playing with mud pies, and we're invited on a beach vacation, and we don't want to give up our mud pies. Because we've never heard of the beach, and we've never been there. We don't know what we're missing. The cross is giving up the mud pie. Right? But what he wants to give us is joy. And I believe that God, we've got to get a glimpse. Have you seen a glimpse of the have you seen a glimpse of the joy and the happiness that God wants to give us as his students, as his disciples? Huh? All right. So the cross is giving up having to have our way. What is it that we're getting in its place? I've, I've said it's the trip to the beach. Let me read, uh, let me read Philippians chapter 2. And if you know it's in Philippians chapter 2, you already know where I'm going. Philippians chapter 2 is starting in, uh, let's see, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, uh, mindset, habitual way of looking at life. All right, have this way of viewing your own life, way of viewing other people. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every time confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is it that we're learning? We're learning that mindset. We're learning this mindset that is our inheritance as Christians. It's part of what Paul was saying. But he's also saying it's not just going to happen accidentally. It's going to happen as you deliberately say, Jesus, I thank you. That it wasn't just sort of your daily, oh, I'm going to do a selfless thing today. But the whole way you think about everything is to be poured out in love for others. And to give up having to have your way for others. That's what you did with the Father before you became a man. And that's what you did when you walked the earth. 
And you're inviting me into the joy of the poured out life. Because you know that it's all joy. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising his, the shame. Again, we're back at the pillow of great Christ. Jesus didn't endure the cross because he's hardcore. He endured the cross because of the joy of the poured out life. The joy of not having to get your way. The joy of getting out of the zero-sum game of I'll treat you nice if you treat me nice. It's the joy of being poured out for other people. I would suggest that this is the whole thing we're learning. I mean, it, it, it comes up in all kinds of ways and all kinds of contexts, but I would suggest it's the whole way we're learning. And the main question is, are you in class? Okay, you, you're going to get some D's in this. How many people have gotten D's in this? Right, the point is, when you get a D, hey, I'm in class, Lord, and I thank you that to get in class, you were very merciful, and to keep me in class, you're constantly merciful. I just want to learn this. Right? I just want to learn it. I don't want to cram for the test. I want to learn it. You go look at the central section of Mark from chapter 8 to chapter the end of chapter 10. And all it is, I love this. Just read it in one goal. Jesus is going to the cross to pour out his life. He tells his disciples that that's what he's doing. He's like, come on, follow me. And then they bicker with one another. And he says, yeah, no, that's, no. That's, Yeah. See, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and you guys are fighting over his best. That's, you missed it. All right? Happens three times. All right? Jesus is so patient and gracious. All right? It happens three times. And go look at it. They do all kinds of things. They're like, don't let the kids in there. <laughs> and Jesus is like, okay. <laughs> so that should give you a little mercy for yourself. Right? If they were there, I mean, they were there with Jesus. And they were doing that. Uh, you know, the, but the point is, that's the way we're on. And when those things happen, maybe I could put it this way. The best way to learn is to fail a lot. And it's what you do with the failures that count. It's what you do with when you mess up. And Jesus did it all the time with his disciples. Yeah, guys, it's really embarrassing what you just did there. Because that's totally unlike my heart. It's unlike my father's heart. But keep going with me because this is what I'm I'm dying. This is what I'm doing. I'm giving up having to have my way, and I want you to do that. All right? So I would suggest that's a, a great picture of our life on the way with Jesus. The main question is, have we decided to learn that thing? Have we decided to be the ones who are saying, yeah, I want to learn this? There's a great quote by the Desert Fathers. It's something along these lines. Christian perfection is to always be progressing. Does that make sense? Maybe another way to put it is Christian perfection is always to be learned. All right? It's always to be, okay, yeah, this is how today went, but tomorrow will work. I want to take up those crosses you send my way. And I want to give myself to learning to be poured out for others as you were poured out for me. Our last scripture that I want to look at. And this is back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. Um, and I'm going to start at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this is the call to discipleship. This is the invitation to be a student. And it's, it's pitched to people who are worn out. 
right? There, there's people who are, man, I mean, life is hard, life is heavy, all right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And by the way, it's the same word there that the word disciple comes from. Learn from me. Be my student. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hopefully, not hopefully, but probably, everybody knows the experience of having not a gentle and lowly of heart teacher. I had one swim coach who, back in these days, he got away with this stuff, who threw a desk in the pool at one of the guys on the swim team. Like, you know, the school desk, the really pool. I don't think he lost his job. So, you know, maybe you've had, I kind of, I kind of like that I grew up in a day when that sort of stuff happened, because you, I don't know, you know what the opposite of this is. Uh, maybe you've had that kind of thing, but Jesus says, listen, I am a great teacher, and if you are worn out, come learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And again, that's, that's one of those phrases I think we need to pray over, pray with, like, Sit with for a while and let the Holy Spirit unfold what it means, kind and generous of heart. Relaxed and helpful of heart. You ever around people that are just, I don't mean chill like lackadaisical, but I mean just poised. They're not disturbed in spirit. They have zero worry. They're just kind of rooted in God's love and, and you can tell they just want to help you. This is what Jesus is saying he is. Right? What's the image that he uses? He says, take my yoke upon you. I think the yoke is the cross. But remember, what is the yoke? It's a, it's, a, it's a work tool where a stronger animal carries most of the weight to teach a younger animal how to work. That is an image for everything that you do in your life. Jesus is inviting you to take him as your teacher in that. Right? And who wouldn't want a teacher like that? Who is a master of doing it, is going to carry most of the weight, is going to help you do what he has called you to do. And so I would, I would suggest that the call to discipleship, it's a call to the cross, it's a, it's a call to all these things. But I really think meditating on these verses at the end of Matthew chapter 11 is a great way to understand the teacher and understand the call to discipleship. It's a call to learn to work with him in the things you already do and find him doing more than you could do on your own and really helping you. Uh, and there won't be. And then, by the way, it's not that Jesus or Paul or any of these people didn't have sorrows and pain and difficulty, but underneath it all, they had this great joy and grace of knowing God's help with them and doing everything they did. Amen? So may we find the secret of the 